Morning, friends. Good to see you this beautiful fall weekend. Uh, my name's Matt. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to take our offering. So ushers, come on down. And uh, church, let's pray for our offering because it is indeed part of our worship. So let's come to God as we give this morning. Uh, however you're giving, through the basket or otherwise, let's pray. Almighty God, thank you, thank you that you have given to us so many good things. Life and breath and friends and family and beautiful fall weather to enjoy here in Vermont. So God, we give this morning out of um, a deep sense of gratitude in our hearts, knowing and trusting that you will do mighty things for the name of Jesus here in Vermont and beyond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, we have just coming up uh, two weeks from today, as Trevor said in the announcements, our annual Trunk or Treat event at our North Ave campus, where I am most Sundays. Uh, this event is one of those big touchstone moments we have with our neighbors in the New North End and in Burlington. And every year since I've been here, hundreds and hundreds of kids and families have come to enjoy Trunk or Treat, even throughout uh, the COVID times and, and masks and all of that stuff. The this is, uh, you know, it's a silly thing, right? We dress up, we hand out candy, we do that. But it's an important thing in that it, uh, it gives us a touch point with people we might not otherwise have touch points with to say hi, to have fun, to, you know, enjoy sugary treats together and, uh, and let people in the neighborhood know we're here and we care about you. So I just encourage you, church, uh, this event can't happen without you, and this event doesn't work if it's not big and awesome and people driving by go, what the heck is going on there, and pull over and join and have fun with us that day. So I'd encourage you... Uh, to sign up to be a part of that day. Many of you have donated uh, candy that had uh, been out in the lobby is full, and I thank you for that. Many of you have already signed up to do a trunk and be there that day, but I encourage you. It's a, it's a Sunday after church, right? It's one o'clock. You've got time to go from here to grab lunch and then come and set up there at North Ave. Come be a part of it. It's fun. It's fun to do it together, and it's fun to meet people and let them know, hey, we're at church. Here's some candy. Uh, we hope we'll see you again soon. So uh, please, thanks for considering being a part of that. And you can sign up on Church Center. The, it doesn't work unless that thing is just big and epic. So let's make it big and epic. Uh, thanks for being a part of that. So uh, over the next uh, month plus, I'll be preaching a couple times here uh, in the next 30 plus days. So um, I, I don't expect any of you to remember this, but I, I like to think about the why I'm doing something. You know, it's hard when you only preach once in a while. You come in, it's like, what random thing am I going to talk about today? So I like to think through why I'm talking about what I talk about. So just for my sake, indulge me for a second, maybe for your sake as well, as I just kind of tell you what and why uh, I'm going to talk about what I'm talking about today and over the next um, few times I'm interjecting here in our current sermon series that Pastor Scott is leading, that one question sermon series. Um, so as I, you'll see me again, like I said, a few times over the next month, uh, I've, I've decided I'm going to take these opportunities to preach in these random interjections on some of Jesus' parables, different parable each time uh, I'm here over the next month or so, just three times over the next month. And uh, these parables I've chosen are some of the less popular parables. You know, you hear a lot of talk in churches and books are written about parables like the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. We all, most of us know those ones. And rightfully so, they're, they're great, great lessons to be learned. They're popular for a reason. But I want to tackle some of the less popular parables over the next month or so. And um, 
some of their themes, especially today, are not so different from the current sermon series we're in, the one question series that Scott's been leading, talking about wisdom. What is the wise thing for me to do? So they're not too far off from that theme. And uh, again, I don't expect you to remember this. This is kind of just for my sake, for why I'm talking about what I'm talking about today. So today we're going to talk about a parable in the book of Luke. But this parable is a little bit odd. And I must admit, this week as I was reading and preparing and, you know, doing everything I normally do to get ready to speak, I, I had some trouble with this parable, wrapping my mind around it, because as you'll see, it almost appears as if Jesus is condoning or congratulating sort of sinful behavior. So you'll see what I mean in a few minutes. Uh, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 16 this morning. We're going to go to verse 1, and the parable we're going to talk about is called the parable of the dishonest manager. So we're going to talk about that. Now, this parable comes in a section of the Gospel of Luke, the story that Luke has written about Jesus' life, where Jesus is telling a lot of parables. He first talks uh, to uh, the crowds, like the big group of people, Jews and Gentiles and everyone who's just come to hear him talk. Then he talks specifically to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And then for this parable, he turns to his disciples his closest friends and followers, people who already are starting to get it and follow him and follow him well. And he tells this parable to them, his disciples, his followers. So we're going to read and we'll kind of interject and talk as we go. Luke 16, we're going to start in verse one. And it says that Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. We'll pause there. So the story that Jesus begins telling, a parable, it's a story that makes a point. And most of the parables Jesus tells, and this one especially, are not true stories, but they're plausible stories. They're stories that could be true, right? They're very real world stories. And the point is for us, as we listen to it, and as disciples, as they listen to it, to imagine ourselves in the story, to empathize with the characters, and draw out meaning from what unfolds throughout the story. So Jesus starts this story, he introduces us to two characters, a rich man and his business manager. Now, the rich man isn't really significant other than his relationship to the manager. The story is really about the manager. And the manager, we're told, has been caught wasting the rich man's possessions, mismanaging his boss's assets. And we're not told what that means. Is, it, is he stealing? Is he making bad deals on purpose? Is it a simple case of incompetence? He's not a very good manager, right? We're not told what that means. It's not really important, the why. But what is important is that this manager gets caught doing a bad job and the boss calls him in to explain himself, but the conclusion is foregone. He's fired. It's done. It's over. He's been found out. And the manager doesn't put up a fight. He doesn't argue. He doesn't explain, you know, try to rationalize it. It's, the evidence is laid out in front of him. There's nothing he can say. He doesn't have a leg to stand on. He's done. So whether his mismanagement was incompetence or intentional, again, it doesn't really matter. But... It's all good until you get caught, right? 
You ride the wave, you play the game, you hold on as long as you can, but eventually failure or dishonesty will catch up with you. Eventually, someone's going to notice. Now, maybe you've seen this story pop up over the last few weeks on the news or on social media or whatever. I've seen it, uh, I've seen it a lot. It makes me chuckle. Um, about these two fishermen who get caught cheating in the fishing tournament in Ohio. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, here's, a, here's a picture from the video. Uh, there's a guy, you know, he's kind of staring blankly. He's been caught cheating. And the other guy in the white shirt there, he's holding in his hand two lead weights. So this fisherman and his, his buddy got caught stuffing their fish with lead weights and filleted, other filleted cut up fish to make their catches heavier so that they can win these tournaments and these prizes. Now this is a relatively, uh, relatively small tournament in Ohio that was going on, um, but they got caught cheating. Apparently these uh, two guys who got caught have won multiple tournaments before this and um, had even been suspected of cheating in the past, though no one could ever prove it. And then today, the guy running, or during that day, when the guy was running the tournament, he noticed a discrepancy between the fish they caught and how heavy they were, and some of the other fish the same size and how heavy they were. So he cut the fish open, and he pulls out lead weights, other pieces of fish, all this stuff, and um, he gets caught. And there's video of this. I can't show you that video. <laughs> because there's a lot of colorful language in that video. It's not a church video, okay? Um, but these other fishermen were mad. They were mad. And the guys who had caught, like I said, they had, they had won multiple tournaments before. They'd won money. They'd won boats. They'd won trailers and all this great stuff, big-time prizes. And one thing you hear from the other guys in this video in the background who are mad again and again, is you stole from us. You stole from us. By cheating, these guys had stolen the possibility of someone else rightfully taking home the prize that was owed to them. And if you watch the video, the guy who gets caught has nothing to say. The evidence is there, in his hand, lead weights. They can't deny it. There's no way to rationalize it. Caught, game's over. Now it's time to be accountable. And accountability does come. These guys, their previous winnings have been seized by the authorities and they're being charged with grand theft. Dishonesty catches up to us. Mismanagement catches up to us. Eventually, the people we are accountable to find out. It's inevitable. Discrepancies will be noticed or lies that we might tell will be too many to keep track of and will slip up somewhere along the way. And when it catches up, you're hard-pressed to find a leg to stand on when the evidence is laid out right in front of you. What do you say? You can't say anything. And this is where our manager finds himself. His mismanagement has caught up to him. The evidence is there, and he's got nothing to say. He can't explain himself because he's caught. That's where he's at. Let's go on to chapter, uh, verse 3. So the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? What am I going to do? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. He has kind of an aha moment. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So, uh, you know, he's got nothing to say to his, you know, the evidence before him. 
But he does start to reflect on his situation and does what any good self-involved person would do. They'd ask the question, what do I do now? What do I do now? What's next? What's my next move? I've been fired. I have no other skills. I can't do manual labor. I don't want to beg. And I just want to say, I totally empathize with the manager in this situation. I mean, I have no practical skills either, right? I, I can change a tire or use a drill, but beyond that, I'm pretty hopeless and useless. Uh, my wife is well aware of that, so you don't have to remind her, please, but I am, I am quite useless. Um, <laughs> so uh, the manager, he, he sees very few options for his future. He knows who he is and what he's good at, and it's not, it's not digging, it's not manual labor, but he is able to see the opportunity before him to come up with a plan that he's hoping will ingratiate himself with some people who, when he loses his job, will owe him one and will help him out. So let's go on to verse 5. Uh, so the manager, he called in each one of the master's debtors, people who owed his master, his boss, money. And he asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. So the manager told him, take your bill and make it 800. So on his way out the door, the manager quickly gets with some of the people who owe his boss money, and he renegotiates, we'll say. (laughs) He fudges their contracts. How much do you owe my boss? Well, 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot. Over a year's worth of wages for a typical person. That's big time money. He says, cut it in half. Saved you half. It's big time savings. Second guy, what do you owe? Thousand bushels of wheat. Again, this is even more than the olive oil. Wheat was worth more than olive oil. Cuts it down by a fifth. Make it 800 instead. Saving him big money on his debts. So by renegotiating these deals and saving these clients big money on what they owe his boss, the manager hopes that they will be so thankful for the money he saved that when he's let go, he's out on the street without a home, without a job, they will help him out. Whether it's live with them or work for them, they'll owe him, they'll owe him one for how he saved them so much money. It's a clever scheme. It's a clever scheme. And I do find it interesting that the manager, he um, gets caught mismanaging his boss's assets. So what does he do to help himself out? He continues to mismanage his boss's assets in order to, uh, to help himself out. Now that, that is some good old self-interested shady business going on right there. Typically, in a parable, in Jesus' teaching, you, you would expect something to happen at this point. Typically, someone learns from their mistakes and repents, and, you know, there's a nice good lesson out of that. Don't be a bad manager, or else you might find yourself out on the street. Or a bad person is compared to a good person, and the lesson is learned in the comparison between the good and the bad, right? That's what we would expect to happen as this story comes to a conclusion. Don't be like this guy. He's bad. He's corrupt. He's unrighteous. But that's not how Jesus is going to end this parable. Here's the last words of the story here in the first part of verse 8. He renegotiates these contracts, saves the money. Then it says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Leave it to Jesus to say the unexpected thing. 
So after setting up this manager as a, as a dishonest yet clever guy along the way, we expect him to come in with some punchline about don't be like the dishonest manager, right? That's kind of how we'd expect the story would go. But instead, what Jesus gives us here, I think is, to me it's a little bit of a head scratcher, and this is what I had trouble with this week. The boss finds out about the dishonest manager's continued mismanagement of things, of essentially robbing him of money he's owed, right? Stealing from him. And the boss comes and commends the manager. He says, hey, that was shrewd. That's clever. Good job. Nice work. And actually, that, that word shrewd in the English here is a Greek word that means wise. The boss, who the manager has cheated multiple times, tells him that was wise. I suppose that's true. The manager used his skill and the opportunity in front of him, what he knew how to do, to set himself up for what's coming next, to think about his future. It's a wise move. It was clever how he did it. But the response of the boss is unexpected. We would expect anger. If I was the boss, I would be angry. Wouldn't you? This guy is stealing from me. I'd be angry. I'd be like the fisherman in that tournament who got cheated out of the winnings. Now, I'd hope that my reaction would be, if it was on video, you'd be able to play it in church, but I can't guarantee anything. But I, I would not be happy. And I certainly wouldn't tell the guy, hey, nice job stealing from, from me, right? The expected reaction is anger, frustration. And the expected lesson would be, Don't be like that guy. Be trustworthy. But Jesus here, I think, is aiming at a different target. You know, often Jesus does teach about, like, what's good and right and just generally morally good, be a good person. He does do that. But more often than not, he teaches Jesus about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He tells parables, gives lessons about it. And we've got to remember who he's talking to here, too. He's not talking to the crowds in this like big diverse group of people. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to his disciples, his followers, his closest followers, who he has chosen and called to follow him so that when he goes to heaven and leaves them, the kingdom of God that he's starting here on earth is in their hands. They are the ones to carry it on. So the parable ends with this Boss's commendation of the dishonest manager. But the meaning for this parable is going to come in what Jesus tacks on to the end of the story. So he concludes the the story, but now Jesus is going to give us, I think, what the lesson of the story is. So we'll finish up verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, after um, the commendation, that was shrewd. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what does this mean? And what's the lesson of the parable? Well, first of all, Jesus is comparing two groups of people here. He's comparing the people of this world and the people of the light. 
uses those two phrases. He's talking about Christians and non-Christians, Jesus followers and non-Jesus followers. And he's setting up a comparison. People who don't follow Jesus, the people of this world, he says, are like the dishonest manager. Now, Jesus is not saying that all non-Christians are bad or thieves or poor managers. He's not saying that, okay? So don't get me wrong, please. Don't get me wrong. But he is saying that for the Christian and the non-Christian, there is a different value system. There's a different set of principles we have to operate with. Non-Christians, people who don't follow Jesus, are accountable first and foremost to themselves. While Christians, people who do follow Jesus, are accountable first and foremost to Jesus. And because of that, there's two different value systems. Non-Christians have the freedom, if you want to say it that way, the freedom to operate more shrewdly in dealing with one another because there's a different value system. What value system does the dishonest manager operate with? Self-interest. What's best for him, even if it comes at the expense of someone else? And again, not all non-Christians are going to do what the dishonest manager did. Not all Christians are not going to do what he did. But in general, there's two value systems. And ultimately, generally speaking, self-interest is the highest interest. But Jesus says, Christians, my followers, you are supposed to be different. Self-interest is not your highest interest. Eternity is your highest interest. So Christians, you have to operate differently according to this different value system. Jesus says to them as he concludes the parable, I tell you to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And I think what Jesus is saying here is so antithetical to what conventional wisdom would say about money and how to use it. Conventional wisdom would tell us to be more like the manager, right? To think about your future, to set yourself up, to have your next move planned out, all of that. Be clever. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that's wrong to do, but he's making a point here saying that you think that's clever, that's wise to set yourself up. Let me tell you what's really wise, what's really clever. And he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it's gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings. Use your money to make a different kind of investment, one that will never fail. And as he's talking, Jesus uses this little phrase about money. He says, when it's gone. Some translations say, when it fails. The shrewdness of the manager was based on something that will fail. Eventually, his plan, his shrewdness, will come to nothing because wealth fades. It will eventually fail. And all the goodwill that he's cultivating using that failing wealth, that goodwill is going to fail as well. The cost will eventually outweigh the benefit for the people he's trying to get in with. Eventually, it's going to fail. You will die one day and you will find yourself standing before the God of the universe to give an account of your life. And part of that's going to be your relationship with money, how you used it, how you invested it. And what Jesus is saying is don't invest in what will fail. Invest in eternity. 
Jesus says, use money, right? Take hold of it. Use it for eternal spiritual purposes. And how does he say to do that? Well, he says to gain friends for yourself. How I would say that for us today is be generous. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to manage your money. I am not a financial advisor. I have no secret knowledge about wealth management. And all of you hearing this in this room online are coming from varying places when it comes to money and the urgency you have with it. Uh, Some of you I know are uh, unemployed, living paycheck to paycheck or on disability. Some of you I know have a substantial amount of wealth and property and investments, things like that. I'm not, I don't have the secret sauce for where you're at. I can only speak about my experience and, and you know, my wife and I, Taylor, we've, we've been through a few seasons of money issues, right? Early careers, early marriage, seminary, grad, you know, income, one income with two kids, finding ourselves in the red month to month, despite our best efforts and, um, you know, having to make decisions like can we afford swim lessons for our kids, things like that, uh, to now being in a place of dual income and stability, being able to save it's nice. And we do the things you're supposed to do, right? Talk to financial advisor, retirement investment, life insurance, budget, savings plan, all that good stuff. So I won't say anything about use your money management except be smart. Be smart. Be wise. Talk to someone who knows what to do. Make a plan. Be smart. So I'm not going to tell you how to manage your money. You got to figure, figure that one out. What I am going to tell you is that no matter how much you have or how much you don't have, be generous. Be generous. Invest in what matters. Invest in what's lasting. People. Kingdom of God. Use your resources to spread the name of Jesus, to alleviate suffering, and to bring joy. Pastor John Piper says this about the parable. Two sentences. He says, use your resources to do as much good as you can for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. Making friends with money means using your money to meet people's needs. A few chapters before this parable in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples about trusting God, and he says this to them in verse 33 of chapter 12. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Following Jesus means we have to reorient what we invest in. The Christian, the Jesus follower, can no longer be, first and foremost, self-interested. We are called by our Lord to be others-interested and eternity-interested. Wealth fails, whether by thief or moth or death. So invest in something that won't fail. The kingdom of God will not fail. Use your resources to do as much good as you can for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. Others who might go before you into eternity and when you arrive will welcome you there with open arms. You know, I've had some incredible role models of generosity that have chosen to invest in eternity by investing in me and my family uh, being generous to us. 
Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but being a pastor is not a particularly lucrative career choice. It's not, you know, <laughs> at least it shouldn't be in my opinion. Um, don't do it for the money because A, there's not much of it and B, um, it's, that's not what it's about. It's about God's kingdom. And the people in my life, there's people in my life that have chosen to be generous to me and my family, use their money to invest in what they believed wouldn't fail. It's the kingdom of God and, and our labor for that. Taylor and I have had family members who chose to help pay off some of our student loans, my student loans from seminary, because as they told us, we see this as an investment in God's kingdom by ensuring that you, young pastor, are trained well for the ministry. And the impact that has had on me, I cannot, I cannot measure it. Financial assistance aside, when I doubt myself or things are discouraging or hard and I, I want to give up, I remember their generosity and their investment. And I'm reminded that there are people who not only believe in me and love me, but the call of God on me and my family. In my previous church down on uh, Cape Cod, years ago, when our family was living on one income, this is a small church youth pastor income, so you can figure that one out. Um, we, we had a, I was in a car accident. Car was totaled. And even with the insurance payout, we couldn't get ourselves into a reliable car following that. And there was an older couple in the church who wrote us a check. It wasn't, wasn't a ton, but it was enough for us to be able to get into a reliable car at that time with two young kids. Uh, a couple of years ago, again, we had significant car problems. Both uh, my car and Taylor's car died on the same weekend, uh, which was super fun. But a few of you, a few people from here at Essex and North Avenue heard about that and chose to come alongside of us and help in their generosity take care of our car issues. And in their generosity toward our family, they invested in something that won't fail. It's the work of God's kingdom in me, in our community, and it's the kingdom of God, eternity investment. And again, when things are hard, I can look at those moments and remember there are people who care and who believe in us and believe in God's call. Generosity doesn't just help the situation you're giving into. The effect that your generosity has has the potential to last in the lives of the people you are being generous to. It's not just a moment. And generosity has an effect back on your life. So as we start to come towards the end, let me offer three ways that generosity has a spiritual effect on your life when you are generous. The first of which is you are blessed by God when you bless others generously. God uh, calls uh, his followers to be a blessing to others. It's plain and simple. It's, in, it's undeniable. He calls us to bless others because he has indeed blessed us. And we give out of what God has given. Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to a man named Abram, who would later be named Abraham. He's the father of God's people. And as he speaks to Abraham, some of his very first words in Genesis 12, verse 2, he says to him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. The call of God on the father of God's people, Abram, Abraham, was to be a blessing as he was blessed. And that extends to us, God's people. It's the same call. 
We give out of what we've received, blessed in order to bless. God also promises to bless us as we bless others. Here's some words in Proverbs 11. It says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. As we bless others, God blesses us. Now, I don't want you to be mistaken that this is not saying that when we give money, God's going to give us that amount or even more back. It's not that sort of thing that he's talking about. That's not God's promise. God's promise is that when we are generous and invest in what's eternal, he will bless us with what's eternal. If you go to chapter 25 of the book of Matthew, Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the future of when he comes again, day of judgment. And he tells us that he's going to separate people into two groups, one on his right, one on his left. And to the people on his right, he's going to turn to them and say, come you who are blessed by my father and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, eternity. Then he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you visited me. And they will answer, the righteous will answer, those on his right. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will reply, tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And he tells the people on his right, you were generous. You gave. You are welcomed into eternity. Then he's going to turn to the people who are separated on his left and say the opposite. He's going to say, you didn't feed when I was hungry. You didn't give me a drink when I was thirsty. You didn't clothe. You didn't visit. You didn't do any of that. And he says to the people on his left, depart from me. Those are strong words. Depart from me. When we invest in eternity, we are blessed with eternity. When we are generous, God welcomes us into his kingdom. The second way generosity spiritually affects you is when you are generous, you place your trust in God, which is what he wants, and he is trustworthy. God wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust him with your salvation, with your eternity, and with your life here and now. Now, I shared a verse a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 12 where Jesus says to his followers, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Shared that a couple minutes ago. That verse comes in this context of Jesus talking about trusting God. And here's what he says leading up to that point. I'm just going to read some select verses because it's a long passage. This is Luke 12. It says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will wear. Consider the ravens, the birds. They, they don't sow or reap. They don't know how to farm, but they have, uh, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. Consider how the flowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, King Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Seek first, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, 
a treasure in heaven that will not fail, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. God wants you to trust him. He takes care of the birds and the flowers. How much more he will, will he take care of you who are created in his image, who are uniquely called by him? He's going to take care of you. You can trust him. And because you can trust him to provide what you need, you can be generous and give away and go beyond what you might normally. Invest in what's eternal because you trust that he will supply and provide and carry you through those gaps that you're creating. God wants your trust. And when you are generous, you prove that you trust him. Third way generosity spiritually affects you is that when you are generous, you pay the cost of discipleship. Following Jesus comes at a high cost. We pay it with generosity. Jesus, Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And a few chapters later in Luke 18, a rich man comes to ask Jesus, what must I do to go to heaven? And he tells the rich man, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. See a theme developing here. Radical generosity is the cost of discipleship. You cannot follow Jesus and be selfish. You cannot follow Jesus and be stingy. The only way to follow Jesus is to be generous. Now the question might be, does Jesus really want me to sell all my stuff and give it to the poor and have nothing for myself? Does he really want that? I mean, yeah, he would love that. And you can choose to be that radical if you'd like. But I really think the heart of this teaching from Jesus isn't necessarily a black and white thing, sell it all or else. I think the real heart of the teaching here is the question we need to ask ourselves. And that question is, am I willing? Am I willing to let it all go for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom? How, how tightly do I hold my possessions or how loosely? Am I willing to use them or sell them and give them away to help someone else? And I think the issues with that are our hearts. What's more important to us? Having my stuff and my things. I love my stuff and my things. <laughs> I'm a man of convenience. Having my stuff or helping feed someone who's hungry. Having a few more dollars in my account or helping to pay the electric bill for that person who ah, can't make it this month. Jesus asks his followers to be willing to give it up for the sake of someone else. So I, I try to ask myself often, am I, am I willing? Would I be willing to give away my car to someone who needs it? Would I be willing to write a big check for someone who needs it? Or to take the winter coat off my back and give it to a refugee in Burlington who's never seen snow before? It's their first winter in Vermont. Am I willing to do that? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Am I willing to be radically generous and invest in what does not fail? The lesson of the dishonest manager is that, that when we invest in eternity, we are blessed with eternity. And that money is a tool that we should use for the good of others. When we're generous, we invest in eternity. And we receive what we invest in.
So church, I just want to encourage you and challenge you, especially in this coming months when we're heading, you know, headfirst into Christmas season, where every year we have so many opportunities as a church to give and be generous. Trunk or treat, be generous with your time or donations. We've got the gift cards that we purchase every year that we give out to different um, social you know, schools, counselors and stuff, people in the area for families and kids to help bless them during the Christmas season. The shoe boxes we send away all across the world through Samaritan's Purse. Or uh, on Thanksgiving at North Ave, we deliver meals, Thanksgiving meals to people. We host a meal in person for people in the neighborhood to come who don't have someone to eat with. All opportunities to be extra generous. I'd encourage you and challenge you heading into this season. Whether it's in the ministry of our church or outside of it, it doesn't matter. Just I encourage you to be generous. Be generous. Invest in what's eternal. Be willing to give it away for the sake of someone else. You are blessed to be a blessing. So trust that God will provide what you need as you follow his call of generosity. You know, we have so many opportunities to be generous right in front of us. I know I do. And I often miss them. So let's not miss them. Let's see them. Let's take care of them and see God's kingdom eternal work right there in front of us. Something we get to be a part of. I don't want to miss out on that. So let's be generous, church. Would you stand as we close in prayer this morning? God, I think it's important that we first thank you. Thank you for your generosity. You've put breath in our lungs. You've given us beautiful sunny fall days here in Vermont. We have friends and family around us. We can provide meals for ourselves. And you died on the cross. You took the penalty for us. You are a generous God. So you ask each of us who follows to be generous as well. So first we say thank you for your generosity, Lord. And we ask that you would help us be generous like you. Open our eyes to the needs around us, to the people right in front of us that we can invest in, that we can bless and help, that we can encourage and love. Help us to see the kingdom work that's happening right in front of us that we can get involved in. That makes a difference when people know about you. Help us, Lord, to see that and to say yes to those things. And Lord, help us to trust that you will provide for us. That as we create gaps in whatever way those gaps look in our time, in our bank accounts, that you will provide for us, that you will carry us through and help us as we see that happen to to trust you more and more so we can be more and more generous. So God, as we go from this place, I just ask that, that we would be more generous. Radically so, because that's what you've called us to. And God, would we get to witness amazing things happen because of it. Thank you for who you are, all you've done, what you've called us to. And Lord, we just want to see great things happen for your glory here in Vermont and around the world. Thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen, church. It's a joy to see you. I'll see you again in a few weeks. God bless. Enjoy the day.